Our guest this afternoon is Phil Riven, AM founder of revered business intelligence group Ibis World. Over a 50 plus year career, Phil has been Australia's leading go-to forecaster and commentator on business trends, strategic services and thought leadership. Phil, it's an honour having someone of your expertise and standing on the program. Thanks for your time. To start things off, tell us about your reading on the economy at the moment. Well, I think you almost have to describe that in a relative sense compared to somebody else in that sense. And uh, we're already the 10th highest standard living country in the world with something like 230 nations around the world. So we've got a good start even in 2021. Uh, we certainly have had the least number of deaths per capita you know, in terms of COVID. So uh, in that sense, we're fine. However, like so many countries, we do have a very big debt as a result of having to handle COVID the way we did do it last year. And all I can say is thank God for very, very low record, low interest rates. So it's not going to cost us very much for the government to service that debt. So I think if you look at that compared to where other countries are, particularly the United States, where they've just lost their 500,000th death through COVID. And fortunately, that's far higher than ours, of course. We only lost less than a thousand, of course. So, Or England, which has also had a bad time. So I think that one should always say compared to whom. And I think on that basis, you know, we're in much better shape than most countries. That said, I think we're going to pay a price uh, as we did for all the debt we're incurring, the same as we did with the GFC back in 2008-9, where the result of that debt slowed our economy down by a good half a percent a year. And I think this time we'll slow it down another half a percent a year, at least for five to eight years. So, But relatively, where else would you want to be but in Australia? <laughs> On a macro level, what are the major opportunities you see for Australia as a nation over the next, say, one, three to five years? Well, I think each of those time differences give a different answer. But if you to take the longer term first, you'd have to say being part of the Asia-Pacific, or Asia generally, if you include the Indian subcontinent, where you've got you know, almost half the world's economy there these days, you'd have to say what a fabulous opportunity Australia's got in terms of our exports and our trade generally. Uh, tourism, you know, export of minerals, services, whatever you like. So that I think being the fastest growing region of the world, virtually on our back doorstep for the first time, we've always been here geographically, but we've never been here in terms of economic trade, which usually with Mother England or with the United States or Europe or whatever at large. So I think the longer haul, we've just got more opportunities than anybody could wish for in terms of being part of Asia with a fabulous growth and the fabulous trading opportunities. I think uh, in the more medium term, I think we're going to have to handle the ups and downs of the post-COVID problem over the next one to three years. In other words, do we have a V-shaped recovery like we're going through at the moment? Or is it a sugar hit as a result of sort of going without spending for so long? If it's not a V thing, it could be a W-shaped one. In other words, we might run into a little bit of trouble the second half of next year and then recover from that, of course. So that uh, I think the short to medium term it's got a few traps in there at the present time that won't give us necessarily another nasty recession, but uh, I think we should be very careful not to assume it's just going to be a straight uh, V-shaped recovery. I'm not convinced that that's going to happen, but I think the difficulty is we're often thinking too short term these days, but if you're prepared to take the longer term, which I do all the time, mm. uh, I think we've got a lot of opportunities and a lot of uh, good economic growth, but we're going to have to work much harder than we've been doing recently to get it. That's the only other thing. What are the major challenges you see over the next, you know, well, at least medium to longer term? Let's use that. Well, I think, first of all, it's businesses that create the, the GDP wealth of the nation. Uh, 
and we've got just over two and a quarter million businesses in Australia. But that said, you know, the top 2,000 corporations out of the 2.3 million account for nearly half the entire economy, which means I think the, the challenges we've really got is at the big end of town, as we call it. In other words, it's the big corporations that aren't doing very well uh, compared to, uh, say, uh, United States cousins. For example, if you look at the, the 100 biggest uh, corporations in America on the stock market, uh, they would average around about a 20% return on their shareholders' equity year in, year out, you know, over any long period of time. But compared to that 20%, we make 11%, so that we're only running at about just over half the pace of the Americans. And I find a lot of excuses out there that, oh, well, they've got a bigger population or they're much more high-tech. None of that's got anything to do with return on equity. We find that profitability's got nothing to do with population size or whether you've got high-tech companies or not. That's nothing to do with it. We, we've got enough good companies in Australia that are earning what you call world's best practice profitability to know that it doesn't matter what industry you're in or how big your population is, you can still get a world best practice performance. And so I think one of the greatest challenges is for our corporations to understand the true keys to success these days, which the Americans understand far better than us. Uh, in America, in about four out of every 10 companies would, would average over 22% return on funds year in, year out, because they know the new rules by which way you should run their businesses. In Australia, we're lucky to have one out of 10, so that I don't mean that in a critical sense of corporations so much as saying that alone is an opportunity, because if we can get up to four out of 10 doing what the Americans are doing, we'll set this economy alight, you know. But, at the present time, I think the indication of the problems we've got is you've only got to look at our superannuation funds, which control about $3 trillion worth of assets for their members, to find that uh, you know, usually two-thirds of that will go into shares, which they do, but those shares are increasingly going to America. In other words, our super funds cannot find enough good companies to invest in on the Stock Exchange of Australia, and that's why, you know, in some cases, more than half of all the shares they buy are American shares, not Australian ones. So, in some ways, I think the greatest challenge is for our corporations to really, truly understand what are the keys to success these days, uh, like the Americans understand so well, but we don't. To what extent have the events of the past 12 months, in particular COVID-19, how much have they accelerated changes in business and society? You know, this might surprise uh, anybody who's listening or watching. Uh, my experience in going back through all the recessions and depressions Australia's had for hundreds of years already, 200 years at least, is that uh, really the trends that come out on the other side of either a pandemic or the other side of a great war or a major recession, you come out the same way as you went in, but not straight away. In other words, Things like uh, working from home as a factor was growing quite strongly anyway before COVID. Now, during COVID, of course, you know, that just jumped up you know, enormously to where most people had to work from home. And people say, well, there's a new trend. Well, no, it's not. Uh, it's simply going to mean that we're on the way from 10% working from home to 20 to 30, which we were before COVID. 30% of the workforce were working either part-time or full-time from home. Now, that jumped to probably near 70% of course during COVID or 80% and it will come back to 30% but keep growing. In other words, uh, people say, oh well no, now that we can all work from home we'll move to the country and a lot of people are doing that. But they're going to find that that's not the life that really they really want. You know, yeah. they think, why did I do this? You know, and I love the country too. But uh, in other words, I think we've got to be very careful to see or ever to think that a pandemic 
or a great war or a recession ever permanently changes anything, it doesn't. You've got to treat those as an interruption to the trends that were already there. So that, uh, for example, we're already starting to do a lot of purchasing online rather than going to, to, to stores. Well, if anything, we went back to buying from stores quite a lot, particularly with the panic buying, but, um, but buying online was growing before COVID and will certainly grow after COVID. Things like fast food, where people were not going to eat in a fast food restaurant so much as have takeaway or home delivery. Now that went berserk, of course, during COVID. Mm. That's gonna go back to the same trend. In other words, we will not be sitting down at a fast food restaurant or takeaway as we were, you know, that's already moving towards either home delivery or going to a normal restaurant. So I, I just get very nervous about people that think that life's gonna change forever. It doesn't, you know. It's a hiccup and whatever goes up comes down and goes back to normal. What are some of the major trends or patterns that you've observed over the recent, say, last decade or, or two? Uh, I think a lot's changed. There's no question we're, we're going through enormous... I mean, first of all, the, the sort of industries that are growing and the jobs are changing enormously. And I think since that's so much part of, of people's um, self-esteem, it's a good place to start. But there's no doubt all the service industries are growing as they are worldwide in the European uh, or the Western world economies. So that our service industries have just been growing and growing and growing fast over the last 10 years. It may surprise or may not surprise some people to know that in fact uh, our biggest employing industry these days is health. It employs almost 1.8 million people out of the 13 million workforce. It's not that long ago you could have said retailing was the biggest employer, uh, around about 1.3 million it was then. And before that you would have said manufacturing, which for about 20 or 30 years was the biggest employer. So that we've now got the service industries accounting for you know, something in excess of 70% of all the jobs and continuing to go there. And I think the other interesting thing is that whilst we push to try and get more high-tech industries uh, in Australia, it's, uh, which we should, there's no question about that, but um, what very few people would realise is that most of the new jobs that we've created for hundreds of years have come through one simple term and that's called outsourcing. Things can seem awfully more complicated than they really are, but, but outsourcing has given us virtually every job we've got. For example, if you went back 200 years ago, most people grew their own food in their own backyard. In fact, Captain Arthur Phillip actually dictated that, that a block of land should be uh, something at least approaching a quarter acre block for an average home. And the reason for that is they should be able to grow their own food, for example, or chop down a tree or two to build a house. In other words, it was a very self-reliant type society in those days. But we gave up, for example, growing our own food, and that's what created the agricultural industry. We wouldn't have had one if we were still growing our own food in the backyard and milking a cow, raising chooks. And then people used to make their own clothes at home or make their own furniture. Well, we wouldn't have had a manufacturing industry if we kept doing that. So we established a manufacturing industry because of outsourcing. So in the last 10 years, to come back to your question, the fastest growth has been in the outsourcing of services from the home. Now, very few people would know that we're now employing well over half a million people, perhaps I think over a million now, in people doing things for us at home that we used to do ourselves, like house cleaning, like washing the car, like minding the children, you know, uh, cooking meals when we get them home delivered. Uh, and the average family is now spending pretty close to, I think it's around about $50,000 a year, getting things done for them they used to do for themselves, or what we call DIY. It's now moved towards DIFM, do it for me. And so um, the fastest growing industries in the last 30 to 40 years, not only the last 10, 
have been the outsourcing of services from the home. And um, I mean, you just don't see anybody mowing their own lawns anymore. 40 years ago, if you saw somebody getting their lawns mown, you would have thought they're a lazy son of a gun, can't even mow their own lawn. If you saw that same person mowing the lawn today, think, oh, he's lost a poor candy. He hasn't heard of outsourcing, you know. So it's amazing how things have changed, but we, we just often don't realise that simple things have created most of the jobs throughout the whole of history and, and will continue to do so in the future, really. And what's going to change spectacularly is that with the advancement that's giving we're getting through artificial intelligence type software is that the mechanization and the automation of so many more things are going to accelerate very very quickly and uh, I won't live to see it unless I come back on earth for a second time but I think that we're going to move into a stage where almost over 90 percent of all the conscious decisions we make during the course of a day either at work or at home are going to be automated for us you know by artificial intelligence so uh, brave new world is going to be but yeah but service industries and the artificial intelligence uh, is really going to change life. Now, as to one of your own businesses, Ibis World, it's got roughly 400 staff, I think, in about six offices uh, across the world, Melbourne, Los Angeles, New York, London, Frankfurt and Beijing. So how has the business been impacted over the past 12 months? Has it been a positive or negative impact in terms of the actual business itself? Well, here I've got to admit to having some faults as a forecaster, I've got to tell you, because we thought in April last year we might take a bit of a beating during the year with COVID because uh, we thought maybe it's not considered an essential service to have all of our online information about where industry is going. I've got to tell you, I got that wrong, and I'm glad I got it wrong because we didn't go down the 30%. We thought we went up something like about 8% up. And uh, I give all the credit to, to our executives, uh, particularly our chief executive, Karen Davey, because uh, what she did immediately was to try and make sure that every industry we had a story about right around the world, and we do well over 500 reports in every country, covering every industry in that country, whether it be Germany or America or China. And what she decided to do was to put a report about what COVID was going to do to that industry. And so uh, for the thousands and thousands of industries we cover around the world, there was a story about whether COVID would help or hinder and by how much. And I think maybe that's what helped the customer saying, we can't do without this service. So. Uh, we actually went up rather than down, so I couldn't. I'm glad I was wrong about that. I've got to tell you. Now let's explore the the background of yourself. As I understand it, you grew up in Parramatta. I did. Uh, attending Marist Brothers College and later the University of New South Wales, enrolling in a Bachelor of Science degree. Talk to me about your upbringing and, and what you remember of it most fondly. A very fortunate life, and I don't think all all of us can say that. But I grew up with five brothers and sisters, uh, including a twin sister. And in what I'd probably call a, a middle-class family, maybe slightly upper middle-class, and, and a very happy family. Um, and again, you assume that's most families, but I'm, I'm sad that's not always true. But I grew up with an extraordinary family with a, a, a very much a yin-yang balance of mum and dad, because dad was quiet, uh, being an only child, actually, as it turned out, virtually. And he'd lost his own father when he was three years old. And, um, to go on and have six children, I suppose, is the greatest shock he was going to ever get in his life. Uh, whereas my mother was a very outgoing woman, extraordinary thing, and I think I've got probably as much as my mother in me as I've got my father. So I grew up in a very happy, balanced family, I think, and uh, and in a family that was very encouraging. Uh, my mother would say, look, if you're going for a job and they don't take you, they're an idiot. You know, in other words, Whereas some people might say to their child, oh, look, you may not get it, sweetheart, but look, another one will come along. That was not my mother. <laughs> she assumed that I had every right to get that job. And I, my marriage went 
continue that because my then wife has since died, which is very sad, but a few years ago. But uh, she was also a very up person as well. So I grew up in a happy, upbeat family, and uh, I think that was the, one of the best free kicks I could get, really. And uh, very high uh, family in terms of ethics, I suppose. And uh, but but love more than ethics, I think. Which mm -hmm. I, I'm a very fortunate uh, son of my parents, I can tell you. And where did the interest in in science originate from? Well, I'm not sure that it was, did, was quite that way. I mean, uh, like most 16-year-olds, which I was when I finished high school, I finished high school the year ahead, I suppose, of most people, but I said to my father, what on earth am I going to do? He said, well, you topped your class in maths, physics and, and chemistry. Well, I think you should do something like science. He said, and I thought, oh, oh OK. Where, where? But don't go to Sydney University, he said, because that's too theoretical. He said, go to this new University of New South Wales. They're much more grounded, you know, in business. So I did. and. Uh, so I started a, a chemical engineering degree, and uh, the first year is always common in a science degree, but I got talked into doing food technology as a major. And it was a four-year degree in those days, and I thought, because the professor of food technology said, you've always got to eat, come wars or depression. I thought, that's a good idea. Or, so I did it. What he didn't tell me is that's a very poorly paid profession, actually. So, <laughs> but that's why I did it. I chose it because I had the, I had the, the school marks to get there, I suppose. and. Uh, and even though I didn't use that for very long, I only used it for about four years after I graduated, but I found that a thorough grounding in facts. In fact, I'm glad I did mathematics, physics and chemistry before I did economics, because I th economics had too many doubtful elements to it, you know. Whereas in science, like if you're building a bridge, you can't have it fall down on you. Mm. You kill people. Economists don't care about that. If, it, if that didn't work, oh, well, we got that variable wrong. You can't... You, and I just couldn't, I couldn't believe economics was so vague, you know. And so I was forever grateful I did science first. It, it just gave me a discipline to go into economics, which is probably why we became one of the top consulting and forecasting firms in the country, I think, because uh, I, I applied a discipline to it that I think in those days, it's getting more discipline now, but it just wasn't there. It was just too vague for me and I thought, oh, no. I'm not going to have this bridge fall out of me, I can tell you that now. <laughs> so you graduated in 1961, but I think you founded Ibis World in 1971. I so did. What did you do in that sort of decade between? Well, funnily enough, I got the first job I applied for after I left university, uh, in, in, in fact, even a year before, because my last year was a part-time year. My professor at the university uh, said, look, the Bird's Eye Frozen Food Company, which is uh, pretty young in those days, it had been in Australia only for seven years, is looking for a new chief chemist and uh, put your name up. So go and have a talk to them. So I did. And they said, yep, yeah, you'll do. So I became the chief chemist of Bird's Eye Frozen Foods, you know, in 1961. And um, I stayed there for two years, but by that stage, um, Bird's Eye had been purchased by the Edgell Food Company, which is famous for asparagus and peas and soup and stuff like that. And so uh, after two years, they said, do you want to become chief chemist of the major factory we've got at Bathurst? And I thought, oh, that sounds all right. So they made me chief chemist at Bathurst, and up I went, you know, and um, in 1963, with a slightly bigger staff in the laboratory in those days, of course, and then within two years, three years, they made me factory manager, and uh, within five years, they made me general manager of 700 people. I mean, that was ridiculous for the age of uh, whatever I was then, around about 68, mm. with 700 people. I mean, thank God I had no false tickets on myself, because, I mean, the people had been there for 500 years, it seemed to me. I mean, the foreman and the engineers and the, the chief accountants, I mean, they knew more than I did about all that sort of stuff. And so I thought, I'm not going to tell them what to do, but if I can see ways of improving the way the business is run, I'll do that, but I'm not going to tell them how to do their job. 
So I think I survived as being the youngest person ever to be the general manager. And uh, whilst I was there too, I won a scholarship through Rotary to go on to America, which I did for three months. And uh, that's what changed my life from being a scientist to an economist in a funny sort of way, because one of the things I did see in America when I was there was an underground war room from the US Defence Department, which I was very lucky to get into. And that just blew my mind with the amount of information and data and how they could make it talk to you. And uh, they were covering everything from uh, military information to economic information, everything. And uh, I thought, oh my God, if only you had that amount of information to run a business, you'd run it better, you know. And uh, so funnily enough, yes, my life at Bathurst changed me in many different ways. It uh, finally changed my career. And uh, the only reason I did leave Bathurst was I was then promoted even further within the corporation I was in because by that stage, Petersville owned uh, Edgels and that's a company that's now longer, no longer here. But that was the biggest food company in Australia at the time, back in the late 60s. And uh, they owned things like 420 pies and um, uh, Peter's ice cream and Edgels and bird's eye frozen foods. They were huge and, uh, and not very profitable at that. They were just too diversified as it turned out. But, um, but they made me chief research director for the entire corporation, and uh, so I did. And, um, and, uh, but then I started to fall in love with more the uh, economics and the, the efficiency side of businesses and, uh, and, and just gradually moved out of my science background into a, a totally different background and then f formed IBIS in 1971, as you've already mentioned. And uh, that wasn't an easy three or four years because starting any business is easy. And I bet you and many other people find the same. And the only encouragement I had in those days was listening to a famous uh, cartoonist when I asked him how long it took him to be an instant overnight success. And he said, five years, 10 months, and three days. He could even remember when, when he finally sort of cracked it, you know. And uh, that changed my life, yes. So what gap did you identify in the market in terms of business intelligence, and how did you go about actually launching Ibis World? Uh, well, I should talk about my mistakes uh, first, because uh, what I had hoped to do in 1972 in particular was to try and emulate what the US war rooms had done. In other words, give you a, a fantastic amount of computer-provided data about how to run your business. In other words, know the outside world, you know, what's happening to your industry, what's happening to exchange rates, what's happening to the labour market in terms of wage costs, what's happening to inflation, um, and inside the company, you know, how's your factories going, your sales and all. So I was probably the first one in Australia to build what you might call a corporate war room concept, where you could take a board of directors into that room or a group of C-suite executives and fully make them fully au fait with all the things that mattered to that business, either on the outside of the business, like the industry and the marketplace and everything else, and the inside of the business, which is so that you could find out your cost and operations. And I thought, what are they going to take to this? Because that was already working in America. There was some very famous cases in the early 70s of companies that had done that, like General Motors and, uh, in fact, some governments, like the Ch Chilean government in South America, actually had built these war rooms so they could get a better fix of their economy and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. to, so they could just run the show more efficiently. Well, I waited and waited and waited, and they didn't come, you know. And uh, I think we built three. Uh, one for a, uh, a house construction firm. Um, we built one from RMIT, the university, and I think two others, one for the Coles organisation and then it just all dried up. And what had happened really was that the whole concept scared the daylights out of chairmen and CEOs because most companies at the board level in those days were run by people 
that were revered with knighthoods or something like that. So that you, they made decisions not based on really information. They'd get some information from somebody, but that's not what, what led to the decision. The decision was, well, Sir John, what do you think about this? Oh, he said, I think it's going to be okay. Yes, Charles said, I think you're probably going to... That's how decisions were made in the 1970s. And uh, I couldn't get over it. And um, in fact, the only board meeting I ever went to with the previous company I'd been with, which was Petersville, was to an actually an Edgell board meeting one time. And that was very soon after I joined the company. And I thought, oh my God, I'm nervous, because I had to go up there to try and justify why I needed to spend money on a new laboratory and new equipment and all the rest of it which wasn't much money compared to what you'd do in a factory, you know, gosh almighty. So anyway, I'm sitting out there nervous and, you know, I go to the board meeting and there were a few nights on that board too. I was asked to come in just as I was finishing off a decision on a $3 million new potato, making, potato chip making plant down in Alveston. And um, they'd obviously been talking about that for some time and, and they went around the room and they said, well, look, the chairman said he's a lovely guy. What's the vote? Somebody said, I'll be in that. And I said, yeah, I, I think John, John's right. And that's how they decided that the whole vote was based on that gut feel. Mm -hmm. So anyway, and that I think it seems to me that whole decision was made in about 25 minutes. Then they got onto my laboratory with test tubes, a few bits of chemical stuff and a new table and chairs. The whole thing would have been more than, God knows, you know, $2,000. That took them two hours. Why they were, they were comfortable, because they knew about chairs and tables and they, they, they and cups and saucers. And, oh, I think we can get it cheaper from Myers than we can do, you know, and all that I couldn't believe it. Now, that was boards of directors in those days, you know. Um, I think today, even now, there's still a bit too much gut feel than there is solid, gutsy, long-term analysis being made on decisions. So that um, my experience in that early days was that I had one hell of a job in front of me so I had to decide not to go down what I call the information route, as, as I had wanted to do, which was a war room with online data being supplied to them in copious amounts. I had to abandon that for 17 years before I could actually find the mark was ready for it. And in the meantime, I switched over to, to strategic consulting because in my last years with Petersville, I had started to do a fair bit of internal consulting for them rather than just doing research. And in fact, in the first year, I think I doubled their profit just by setting up a much more efficient purchasing operation so they could combine all the purchases for the entire suite of companies they own. So I got into strategic consulting and uh, that worked very well. I think we developed quite a few new techniques that was never seen in Australia or America for that matter because our long-term view was to have a look at the history of an industry over, say, 50 or 60 years. We wanted to know where it was on that long cycle. Because we found out very quickly that every industry in Australia runs in roughly an average of about 43-year cycle. Some are long, some are shorter. And if you don't know where you are in that cycle, you're going to be making the wrong decisions all the time. So we pioneered that. We pioneered the concept of what market share you should take up, you know, be a major or a minor or whatever it is. We broke ground every which way and we became the biggest strategic consulting firm in Australia by the early 1980s. So we're very proud of that. So the early years were not easy, you know, and... and uh, we had to abandon the whole idea of becoming a high-powered information database company until 1988. So I had to wait 17 years to be able to do what I wanted to do in the first place. And um, and after that, well, that, that's, well, it took us still 12 years to go overseas, but after that, wow. Mm -hmm. 
And so we, from there on, we became the world's biggest online information database company for industries and markets. So, but oh, nothing's easy, as I say. An instant overnight success is at least six years for a start, you know. And uh, and even now, it may be interesting to know that you know, for, for all of our size, whenever we open up a new country, we're quite prepared to run that at a loss for seven years, if needs be. But at the end of seven years, we will totally own and control that, that country completely in terms of our supply because we've spent so much money, more money than anybody else in the way of a competitor. We've just become much more thorough and better. But um, it, if anything I learned out of all of that, it's having long patience and you eventually need some deep pockets as well, which we've got, but you need a lot of patience and tenacity, I think, to make something work. But yes, that's how I started and we ended up in a different place, I suppose, eventually. And in, in your view, what are the key economic indicators that you look for and, and why? I think one of the most serious ones at the moment, if I could answer that, would be productivity. Because one of the biggest problems we've got at the present time over the last five to eight years is that our efficiency and our productivity is very, very low. Now, if you went back over the last 200 years, our efficiency has grown at just under 2% average a year. It's a bit like saying if you made 100 widgets this year, you made 102 next year, that's 2% better than 104, then 100, etc. So a 2% productivity growth doesn't seem much, but in a decade you've gone up more than 20% because if it's compounding at 2%, you're about a quarter higher than what you were when you started. So productivity is how our standard of living in this country, any country, improves. But instead of growing at 2%, it's, it's slowed down to about 1.7% per annum over the last 40 odd years. And now it's slowed down to about 0.7 and then to point four, I think, over the last four or five years. So I think one of the most serious economic problems we've got is, is efficiency and productivity at the present time. It's not the only problem, but it's one of the biggest ones. Um, I think the second biggest economic challenge is getting companies to look much further ahead. And um, I find it quite strong. So I've arranged a lot of directors who will say to me, Phil, are you still on this long-term sort of forecasting stuff? I said, yeah. They said, oh, it just doesn't work, Phil. You've got to understand, you can't tell anything more than about three to four years ahead. It's just too... We don't do that anymore in our corporation. We, we're happy with three to four years. And I said, I don't believe that. What do you mean I don't believe it? I'm, I'm the chairman, you know. And I said, yeah, but you've just invested, you know, like $87 million in this new bloody expansion, and you can't write that off for at least 10 years. So you've made a 10-year decision already, haven't you, by buying it, investing in it. Oh, I never thought about it, but... In other words... You know, the reality is different to the perception of people. And, uh, and of course, the idea of reporting quarterly or half-yearly has become a very dangerous practice over recent years. But my experience with corporations is if they plan long haul, stick to it, and are getting there, even if it takes as long as they said, the shareholders will back you to the hilt. You know, they won't worry. But those that are constantly mucking around with quarterly things or that, yes, the shares are going up and down like a yo-yo, but... It's just, it's not right that shareholders won't back a long-term plan if it's well strategized mm. and they think it's going to work. They'll back you all the time. There's no question about that. And uh, so I think having much better long-term planning uh, as well as getting much more productive than we are is two of the greatest economic challenges uh, I'd say we've got. Uh, I mean, we do have plenty of other challenges. The fact that we are part of the Asia-Pacific, which I've mentioned already, is very, very important because now one-fifth of our entire economy is now exported. Now, there was a time when it was only about, about one-eighth of our economy, so we're much more, we well, could call it exposed, if you like, but I'd say much more opportunistic now. In other words, we import more and we export more. 
Now, I, couldn't, I could see a time when we could easily go up to a quarter of our economy being dependent on trade, and only three quarters depending on the domestic economy. Now, that means you've really got to know what you're doing. And trade's not easy, but then again, it's not easy domestically either. People think, oh, domestic economies are easier than exports. I'm not sure that's always true, but it can be pretty volatile. And um, the trouble with our exports is that 50% of them are minerals, and they're a very jumpy thing. I mean, those prices can go up and down all over the place, and, uh, and some countries can play hardball, and we, we're experiencing a bit of that, as we know recently, with uh, our minerals going, or not I mean minerals, but wine and stuff going to China, because uh, international, international diplomacy has never been an easy thing to do. It's, uh, you do see a, a fair degree of bullying, I suppose, up to a point, or people pretending to be offended and all this sort of stuff too, and you've just got to be careful about that. There's no, there's no sense complaining about it. So the more we are exposed to this fabulous Asia period, the more skills we're going to have, not only in being good at what we're doing, but also in diplomacy, there's no doubt about it. And I think that message has come home very clearly over the last year as well. It's one of the things that does worry me. I just don't, I think our corporations need a lot more help to get up to the American standard of performance, which doesn't mean you have to work harder or screw the, the employees, which people think they do in America. That's not true. We, we're in America, our biggest operations in New York, Wall Street, and also in LA. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about America. They're, they're there because they're efficient. It's not because they screw everything to the wall. That's just, that's one of those nonsense things that you hear over and over again. And um, I think we've just got to get a much more efficient, much smarter, much cleverer bunch of corporations in Australia to take advantage of what we've got being part of Asia. So uh, it's a very exciting future, but it's, it could be a scary one if we don't do it properly. Um, one of the other things that I'm very pleased about, because it's a very slow but a very positive thing, is that most of our immigrants are coming in from Asia. In fact, two-thirds of all of our immigrants these days are not from Europe or America or anywhere else, they're from Asia. In other words, Australia's becoming slowly but surely a U European and a Eurasian uh, and towards an Asian society. Now, that'll happen over the next five generations, which is about 100 years, uh, we'll be a very different mix of people, uh, still extremely wealthy. Uh, probably in 100 years from now, we'd be at least five times better off than we are even now. Like we were 100 years ago, we're five times better off than they were in the early 1900s. Mm -hmm. We're going to be super wealthy and super you know, looked after, but it's going to not be a European or a British type you know, society anymore. It's going to be uh, a Eurasian society, and uh, that'll be very slowly, osmotically developed over that period of time and easily coped with. But um, I couldn't be pessimistic about Australia's future but that's not to say I don't think we have to pull up our socks in a lot of areas, you know. I think in terms of some of our attitudes as a society towards Asia, but I think we're, we're much less racist than, than most countries. We, we have pockets of it where it makes you shudder, but uh, by and large, we're a fairly tolerant nation in my opinion, but, um, but I think being part of Asia and the Asia culture and the Asian society is where Australia's going. I mean, we, we're a funny sort of a, a an aberration in Asia, being a British island, you know, in the middle of an Asian society, we're going to be more Asianised over 100 years and uh, probably better looking as a result, as well as wealthy. Where do you see GDP growth in the medium term? That, that can be up and down, but it's again the service industries that are giving us our growth by and large. Uh, I mean, at the present time, the hero for the last year during COVID, of course, was, was our minerals, our mining industry, uh, because they pretty well continued growing, whether it was our iron ore in particular. Uh, 
But other minerals were growing as well too, and of course the prices were up through the roof again, like they were back in the early 2000s. So that the, the, the short to medium term growth is definitely coming out of um, things like mining, but also out of health, which as I said is a very big employer in Australia these days too. I think the one that will come to the aid of the party, but not necessarily the next 12 months, but over a much longer period of time is our agriculture. The only difference this time is it's a bit like mining. You don't necessarily need many people to, to, to run mining companies anymore. In fact, mining contributes 10% to our GDP. One-tenth of our GDP comes from mining. Only around about 250,000 people are employed in there, which is 3% at most of the workforce doing 10% of the economy. Agriculture, which used to be 50% of our economy once, is down now at 22%. Very few people realise how tiny agriculture is. If you think that's tiny in America, the whole of their agriculture in America is down to 1.4. Because it's mechanised, of course, and they're growing more and more stuff, but they, take, they don't need anybody to do it, so it takes up a very small amount of GDP to do it. I think agriculture, we, we can't possibly feed the whole of Asia, for example, because we just don't have enough water. We've got plenty of land, but not enough water. And uh, unless we harvest that, we could, I suppose, up at the top end. But um, I think we're going to become a, probably our agriculture will grow at least four times, maybe four to six times bigger in output than it is now. And most of that will be going to Asia. But that's going to be very heavily mechanised and more and more of it's going to be in the top end of Australia where our water is because 60% of all the water Australia gets each year is in the top one third of Australia. So why on earth we, we, we settle the bottom half? I don't know, you know, all the water's up there. And uh, so I think agriculture is a long-term growth area, but over the next 12 to 18 months, it'll still be in minerals. Um, it'll be uh, construction, for example, growing quickly, and we're starting to see that return with a housing boom coming on. So construction is going to be very important. That will feed back into a bit of the manufacturing as well. But again, health, as I say, enormously fast. And the other one that's growing quite quickly is your professional services area. In other words, that's part of creating a much more IP-based company. If you've got the services of first-class IT people or lawyers or accountants or whatever. So, uh, yeah, we've got plenty of good growth industries coming through over the next 12 months. And the further out you go, um, yes, add agriculture to the thing. But fun enough, if I was to say going into the 2030s, which is over 10 years away, what would be our biggest export? It'll probably be tourism. It won't be minerals, and it won't, won't be agriculture. It's going to be tourism. Because we were getting in almost 8 million visitors a year you know, uh, before COVID, and we'll eventually go back to that number too. It's going to take us a few years to get back there, of course, with quite a number of protocols having to be observed about entry and exits of people. But you, you see, our exports of tourism was getting up around 80 billion dollars, you know, before COVID, and okay, minerals are up over 200 million, but I think the thought that uh, tourism would overtake mining, and this will shock a lot of people, but tourism may well be our biggest single industry being exported, you know, within 10 or 15 years from now. That's got to be a positive in a number of ways, I think. It, first of all, tourism does create a much better understanding between races of people. It's a good way to, to sort out any sort of prejudices or biases you've got, so that with us going overseas and others coming here in greater numbers, uh, you do away with a lot of the um, misunderstandings between society. So it's, it's a great leveller in terms of, of peace in a, in a region, and, um, but a massive income earner too, and I think it's going to be a very big one for our exports, as I said. There's been talk at, at all levels of trying to recreate Australia's manufacturing past. Do you think that's realistic? No, I don't. I, I, I think it's, it's one of those wishful things, and there's still people who should know better still saying that. Not in doubt is we're doing great progress with what you call advanced manufacturing. 
But see, these days manufacturing is only just under 6% of our entire GDP. At its peak, uh, which is when I left university, it was around about 30% of the economy. It's now down to six. And of that six, about half a percent of that six, or one twelfth, is advanced manufacturing. They're doing alloy wheels for cars overseas or all sorts of things, uh, special parts for titanium parts for jet engines, all that. People like CSL, which is the third most valuable company on our stock market these days for their vaccines and blood plasma things. We've, we've got some manufacturing which is very, very advanced and world best practice. So that's going to hold up very, very well. But we're not going to be able to compete with things and we've stopped competing with trying to make a television, trying to make mobile radios, we've stopped making cars. We made cars for at least 10 to 15 years longer than we should have, you know, because once the world had recovered from World War II, time was going to run out for a country as small as Australia to pretend it could make motor cars. Our domestic market was just too small to even kickstart it and it wasn't big enough in Scandinavia with Volvo and people like that either. So the point is, I think that given also that that's an industry being mechanised so quickly, we can still keep increasing the output of the things we're still good at mm. without putting it on any more people. It's a bit like warehousing. I mean, these days you look at a warehouse compared to what it was 20 years, it's fully automated. I mean, if you know, the trick is, can you see a person here anywhere, you know? <laughs> is anybody working here? Whereas well, it's been 200 people would have been in a warehouse once, you know, if it's a big enough warehouse, now you can't see anybody, you know? Now that's happening, and that's, this is mechanisation and, and intellectual property at its best. So no, I, I, I don't see, if manufacturing is going to recover, it won't be so much a big recovery as a share of GDP because of mechanisation, but it might shock people to know that probably within 20 years we could be on our way to being the world's biggest steel-making company again, country, you know, mm. because the iron ore is here and the energy's here to do it. We probably won't be using coal to convert uh, iron into steel in those days. It'll probably be either natural gas or something else. A technology that's not been perfected yet, but with having a massive amounts of energy and massive amounts of the world's best iron, nearly the world's best iron ore, if we can't make the world's cheaper steel, then we should give the country to somebody else who can, you know. And that's some of the challenges, I think, with going being part of the Asia-Pacific. Are we up to the challenges? Or we are, are we so short-sighted or looking backwards that we just don't see where it's going to go? You know, it's a bit like saying electric cars will never work. Well, I'd like a dollar for every time they say that about Tesla. Uh, the best car I've ever owned is a Tesla. You know, trouble-free. Don't have to go to a service station. Cost me nothing to charge the car up because it's got solar panels on the roof, so if I charge up, I'm paying nothing for the electricity. Mm. And it never goes wrong. We can be too quick in saying, oh, that won't work, that won't work. Mm. Uh, and Australia's not got a, as good a reputation in innovation as it once had. Australia's most innovative century was definitely the 1800s to the 1900s. That century was where our corporate Australia could be the most proud, because here we were in this wild country which nobody understood, and between 1800 and the year 1900, we, we moved to the highest standard of living country in the world. We had number one status over the United States, England, everybody. Mm. We had the highest income per capita. And when you look at the entrepreneurs that drove that century, whether it be special jump plum plows or all sorts of innovations, how to grow wheat in a country with only you know, 12 inches of rainfall instead of 30. Mm. Oh, the, the innovation and the drive of that century it was the century in which our corporations were the heroes, even more so than our military, which wasn't that big in those days, or our sports people. Last century, the, the, the 20th century, our heroes were the military, because they went and defended almost every country they could think of for nine out of the 10 decades. So we, we had a, a very illustrious 
reputation in the military and an equally illustrious reputation with our sports people, who from the first Olympics in 1896 went on to win more gold medals per capita than anybody. The corporations definitely in the back seat during that last century and they still haven't come to the front again. So that, um, uh, yes, I really am quite passionate about the need to, uh, to see that sort of in innovation returning to Australia. I think it's so, so darn critical. So in 2017, you established the Riven Institute. Overall, what services do you provide? We're trying to really have one prime service, and that's to help any business get up to world's best practice profitability. In other words, can you take the average Australian profitability, which is much lower than people think? Uh, I mentioned earlier that there was 2.3 million businesses in Australia, or two and a quarter million, their average profitability over the last 35 years has only been 4% return on capital investment. Now that's scary because the bond rate's been 5.5% over that period of time and that's a risk-free investment. Uh, if you look at our major listed companies, they earn about 11% on average over any three or four or five year period. The Americans earn nearer to about 20. And um, so the prime objective of the Institute is to show the unfailing, what I call golden rules of success to get up to world's best practice profitability. Because if you get up there, you're not going to have problems with a lot of the other problems that we often seem to worry about, uh, you know, whether it be wage problems or sharing profits in some way or another through wages or whatever. And of course, if you're not up to world's best practice, how on earth are you going to compete overseas uh, or withstand overseas competition coming into Australia? So we're going to get, both of those things are happening. Now, for example, this is historical, but most of our banks went overseas sometime over the 80s and 90s, and most of them have had to come back, you know, having written off billions and billions of dollars. And it's mainly because they weren't up to world's best practice before they left. And the other problem they faced is they had to become a very small player in those countries, not a big one like here. And being a small player means you have to be able to almost dance and be very unique compared to big, where you've got economies of scale, so that We've got enormous challenges still going through this century to be able to compete overseas successfully and you've got to be clever to do that. You've got to have unique intellectual property, you've got to just know what you're doing. And you've got to have that inside Australia too, not only because of local competition, but because the overseas people are coming in here and if they know much more than you do, and see we already know that most of the foreign companies in Australia do far better return on investment here than, than our Australian companies do, they've always done that because they know world's best practice when they come in, you know, because they, they couldn't survive around the world if they weren't world's best. So they're bringing in world's best practice and, uh, and we think, oh, well, that's because they're big and they're American. That's not the point. They've just got world's best practice and uh, it's not that hard to find out world's best practice. Uh, I mean, well, it is and it isn't, I suppose. But uh, so the Riven Institute is there not to criticise corporations. That's ridiculous. I can be critical of corporate Australia I'm not critical of businesses individually. I've, I don't think I've never met really a director or a chairman or a chief that I don't like. And I'd be happy to, to sit down and talk to them, bite to eat and yeah. Because they're clever people. They just, most of them just don't know the world's best practice ideas. So the Institute's there to help them. And uh, we're here to help two types. One is a corporation itself. And we've started to do that, which is good because it's taken us a while to mechanise what we know is world's best practice. We've done it for 40 odd years, 50 years with consulting and everything else. So we know what to do. We can do it in our sleep. Uh, 
I mean, projects that used to take take us three months and cost anything from two fifty thousand to a million dollars to do, we can probably do for fifty or sixty thousand these days because everything's mechanised, a bit like anything else, making cars, whatever. We could probably review a strategy in probably three days as to whether it's working or not, and to convert it or help a corporation convert it, probably only takes another ten. It doesn't take three months anymore, and it doesn't take hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars to do it. Because our industry, like anything else, can be mechanised, and that's what we're doing. So we, we're trying to help corporations, but we're also trying to help the super funds. We're just launching this next month a product for the super funds because they're, they're handing $3 trillion worth of members' funds. And as I might have said earlier, increasingly they've been investing overseas where the companies give a much better return than our Australian-listed companies. So what we're trying to do is help them find out the best Australian companies over the long haul. I mean, they're probably better at me at knowing what's going to happen over the next six to 12 months or 18 months. You know, the finger on the pulse, I'll be going to be up or down. Mm. That's fine, but five or 10 years, you know, I'll back myself every time against that. And more and more super funds are trying to get a longer term view for their members anyway. So we're offering a brand new range of products starting from about April that's going to be able to sort out the whole 300 biggest corporations on the stock exchange and tell them whether they're good, bad or indifferent tell them what's wrong with them if they're not working and be able to f tell them what, how to fix it. Because mm. more and more super funds are now starting to say, no, we've got to start flexing our mess. You know, we can't keep investing our money overseas all the time. Uh, we're finding a lot of the heads of the super funds would like to go and sit down with the chairman and the CEO or the board of a company and say, look, we're not investing in you guys, but we'd like to because you're big and we'd like to see you do better. Uh, we think we know what you're not doing right and why it's not working. Can we help you, you know? Mm. And uh, the board might say, well, well that's, that's happy, it's not yours. But I think most sensible people say, well, okay, what do you, start talking, what do you reckon, you know? Mm. Now, if we can arm the super fund with a, a brilliant analysis, mm. so that the board might say, oh, mm, okay, right. We're, we're out to help mm. corporate Australia and help and help super fund, fund members invent. That's what we're trying to do. And I don't need to make any more money because I made a heap of that with, with Ibis World and still are. It's made a fortune and still does. But the Riven Institute is just, a, it's more a legacy. I'd just like to leave a much more intelligent, clever Australia than when I leave this earth than I've I found, that's all. Mm. We're in business to help them do that. And uh, we've done a couple of those already. I mean, um, I won't mention names, that's not fair, but uh, in fact, we had one of our clients oh, about a year ago uh, stopped us halfway through the uh, the program. We thought it might take two months because we had to do it by uh, Zoom because we couldn't get up to see the clients interstate. And uh, we're halfway through. He's one of the cleverest guys I know in Australia, actually, too. And he said halfway through, mm, I know what I'm doing wrong. Thank you very much. And so we, we just chopped the whole price in half because he said, I don't have to go all the way through. I know you, you've told me now and I can kick myself for not seeing it, you know. So, and that's great news, you know. Because um, I think anybody who's not overly you know, self-ego tripped or a sociopath or something like that, uh, I think if, as long as you've got an open mind, and I do, I hope, you can say, hmm, well, if that, if that can double my profit, who am I not to sort of have a good listen? So that's what I'm trying to do. My final question is, how does Australia go about managing the Australia-China relationship and then the Australia-US relationship? How does it go about balancing those? It's, it's tricky. I think that the first thing I suppose that's important with China is that it's up until 1870 or thereabouts, it had been the world's largest single economy for 3,000 years. 
People often talk about the Roman Empire, because as Europeans, that's what we studied. We assumed the Roman Empire was the biggest, you know. Then we assumed the British Empire was the biggest, you know, until that started to come apart after World War I. No, China's been the biggest single economy for most of history, you know. So, and they're number one again. They overtook America four years ago, and they're now the largest economy in the world. What very few people might realise, though, is that India's number four, and it's going to become number two within the next 10 to 15 years. And very few people might know that India was also the second largest economy in the world for over 3,000 years up until, you know, the Brits decided they didn't want that because the, the Brits stopped them getting into manufacturing, of course, which they could have done. And that would have threatened the whole of the British textile industry and clothing and everything else. So India was held back the same as China. China was held back more by the Yanks than by the Brits, or both, I suppose. But So I think the first thing to understand is that history is going back to where it was. The two most populous nations on earth, which is China and India, are again reasserting themselves as the world's first and second biggest economies. And that'll happen during the lifetime of most Australians, here now, that are alive today. So that's the first thing. The second thing is if you take then the rest of Asia, um, which never was all that rich either, you know, whether it be a Vietnam or uh, anything else, they're, they're coming along at a speed that nobody's ever had before. In fact, going back to, chi to China, no country in the history of the world, to my knowledge, has ever been able to grow like China has done at an average of 8.5% growth in GDP for 50 years. And that's what China's done. For 50 years, I know that's never been, never heard of. America became the number one in the world, growing at something like around about 4%. Britain became the number one with the empire, growing at about 2 mm -hmm. And the Romans about 1%. You know, now here's China growing at 8.5%. India's now getting up towards that level as well. So handling China and India has to first of all respect the fact, A, historically they've always been the biggest, they're back to being the biggest, and India's coming up very fast behind it. Now, that warrants some respect, uh, I think, and not only because they've got the, the potential hegemony to, to be able to bully you, but putting that to one side, they're big and therefore have to be respected for what they are. They're big. They're big, therefore, as a market for us too. They're going to be pretty demanding, uh, but fair enough. But we've been used to dealing with the British Empire for the first hundred years of our history as a European nation here. Uh, and with the second half mainly with the United States and now we're having to deal with Asia. A great place to be, as I've said, all the way along the line because it's so big, growing so damn fast um, and we're going to be slowly Asianised over a very long period of time. But the diplomacy that goes with that is going to be very, very tricky. And um, the difficulty, of course, is when you might get what I might call authoritarian-style leadership in some of these countries, it's a little harder again, uh, there's no doubt about that. And see, we've been spoiled by the fact that with England, we're always dealing with a democracy. Uh, in fact, the, uh, the system which we adopted for our own uh, uh, government here, and then we're dealing with the Americans, which again was a democracy, you know, perhaps the first republic or democratic republic in the world, in the modern world. And now we're not dealing with quite that way uh, of control. China's certainly not that sort of a democracy. China would argue that democracy as we know it's going to be very difficult to succeed by the end of the century and I think there's an element of truth in that. The main reason being when you've got so many educated people, so many votes, you're going to splinter up you know, the economy and make it very, very hard to manage and uh, democracy is going to come under a lot of pressure through the rest of the century. I'm not going to forecast its death, I won't because I don't necessarily think that, but 
is going to take a lot of adjustment. But China and India, India being nominally a uh, democracy, and, and is, I mean, they do have the vote, but a lot of difficulties uh, in India, which uh, they're overcoming, I'd say, and they've got a lot of those to do with either religion or race or all sorts of problems and polarisation of incomes, et cetera, et cetera. But it's a long-winded answer, but I'd say we are going to have to respect, not kowtow totally, we have to respect with diplomacy uh, and, and with actual realities, mm. a different world to where we've been for the last 230 years since 1788 or 234 years, whatever it is, yeah. And uh, as I say, that's gonna take uh, a lot of care. It's sometimes you've got to swallow your pride a bit here and there, and um, we're just gonna be very, very careful and very, very sensitive. But I think above all, we're gonna to have to be very, very clever. We, we are gonna find the competition from those big countries, very, very impressive. You know, our universities may not be able to compete with a good Chinese university for very much longer. They're going to be able to pay for and get the most intelligent people in the entire world, which is what America did when you think about it too. They bought all the biggest brains they could get out of Europe uh, and spent a lot more on research and development and innovation than we've done. So, yeah, I think diplomacy and in lifting our game way above where it is now towards world's best practice are the two great challenges we've got. Well, Phil, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the program this afternoon. A business legend, thanks for your time. You're more than welcome, thank you.